1: With over 13 years of experience as a financial advisor, Andrew has expertise in comprehensive financial planning services to help clients thoughtfully pursue their goals. He also plays a key role in Freedom Street Partners' recruiting and client experience efforts, ensuring they deliver on first class service that fosters lasting relationships with the families and individuals they serve. Andrew serves as the chief operating officer with a primary focus on advisor operations and recruiting. He works diligently to make sure that the current advisors have the tools and resources they need to run their practice, and he's constantly sharing the firm's story with advisors looking to retire or make a change. Formerly a teacher, Andrew sought a career change and moved into financial services that would enable him to continue his practice of helping and guiding others. He aims to not only provide sound advice to help clients, but for them to also understand why this advice is so important. Andrew was previously a financial advisor with Edward Jones, and while there, he also served as a recruiting leader, mentor, and coach for his team members. Andrew earned his bachelor's degree in recreation, sport, and wellness management from Christopher Newport University. And his mother taught him to surround yourself with good people and good things will happen. And so far, that's proven true. His love of educating and helping others has always been at the forefront of his professional life, both as a teacher and later as a financial advisor. And um, he's also one of our newest members of the COO Alliance. So, Andrew, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, uh, It's my honor to be here. No, you're welcome. I'm, um, I'm just back from a, a five and a half weeks vacation and sitting and reading something um, off of a laptop. I haven't got my brain back. It feels like that was good. I got it in one take. You look well rested. That's all that matters. You're good. <laughs> Very well rested. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got kind of started in your career and, and um, kind of where your experiences come from. And I'm also even curious a little bit. I'd like to know just even a little bit about the, uh, the sport and wellness management and uh, what you learned from that part of your as well.
0: Yeah my career track is not the uh, is not the typical track for somebody who is in the field that I'm in. Uh, you could tell maybe just from that just from that bio I started off as a as a high school teacher and uh, I taught health driver's ed physical education. Um, I coached three sports. Uh, I played baseball in college and wanted to be a baseball coach that was my that was my passion. And uh, teaching was the easiest avenue to get to that passion. And after about five years in the education field and um, leaving my home at six in the morning and not getting home until eight o'clock at night, uh, making around $40,000 a year and having a young son at home that I barely saw awake, I knew I needed a career change. And um, so coaching translated well to this profession. Uh, You know, as a coach, you're constantly trying to, to mentor your athletes and help uh, help them accomplish their goals, help them get the most out of their potential. And uh, financial planning was not all that different from that. Um, it wasn't all that different from teaching. I still feel very at home on my whiteboard, explaining things to clients, and uh, and also explaining our story to other advisors and uh, and advisors that are looking to get out of the business. So. It was a smooth transition, but uh, I just I look at every experience as a building block. Uh, teaching prepared me for this career. Uh, it gave me the skill set to talk to people, to educate, and uh, to to help uh, help clients accomplish their goals and and uh, do what they're do what they're looking uh, to do with our assistance.
1: It's cool. I actually, I actually had written down the words coaching and teaching to dive into, and I, I, I'm glad you kind of mentioned both of those so seriously as well. So uh, before we even even kind of dive into to talking about um, Freedom Street Partners, I want to find out a little bit more about your, your methodologies in coaching and, and some of what you maybe learned from coaching in baseball and, um, and yeah. what, what you bring into the coaching practice and coaching employees. So talk to us a little bit about coaching and, and some of the methodologies.
0: You know, one of the things I think that uh, that coaching taught me is that everybody responds differently uh, to how you deliver information. Um, the, the phraseology that I used to say, and, and I think it's still OK to say it is, you know, some players you need to kick in the butt and other players you would pat on the butt and uh, meaning that, you know, some players don't respond well if you try to jump on them and, and be very critical. Um, but then there were other players that needed that. They needed that, um, that direction. They needed a little bit more of a firm, uh, firm voice that let them know that they weren't on track. And so what I took from that with what we do is personalities. You know, we spend, we actually do disc assessments for some of our top level clients. We want to know how they think. We want to know how they respond to information so that we can deliver it the best way possible. So we almost took uh, some of that coaching acumen and tried to put some science behind it. And uh, and I think it's served us well. It's showed that we don't just care about clients' money. We care about them. We care about their personality. We care about who they are as people. Hmm. And in an industry where it's very difficult to set yourself apart because we're very commoditized, unfortunately, I feel like that uh, that's one of the things that that we've taken to heart and, and what I do personally to to interact with clients that way.
1: That's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that coaching is actually the number one skill that a leadership team needs to have over all the other soft skills and executive functioning. Um, I think coaching is really because our job as leaders is to get results through people. And the only way to do that is to coach them. Um, so then talk about teaching. and And I'd love to know kind of what you learn from teaching kids in high school and and what what applies kind of in teaching adults and teaching in the, uh, you know, in the companies, because there's got to be some lessons there for sure.
0: Well, well, the first thing that I loved about uh, transitioning to this career was uh, I was actually able to teach and only worry about the teaching aspect. There was, I don't have to discipline any of my clients. So there, uh, I weren't, I don't have to refer my clients to the, to the principal's office. And, um, and definitely didn't have to write them up or, uh, or or chastise them in any way, but from a from an education standpoint, I think a lot of advisors in our industry they focus on just telling their clients what to do, mm. and as a teacher. If I just told my students what to, what to know without really kind of giving them the why and giving them the background and building them from step A to step B to step C, instead of just saying, all right, here's where we're starting and here's where we're landing. Um, I think it probably gives the teaching uh, industry a disservice. And so we focus on helping our clients understand why we're doing what we're doing and not just saying, hey, we're smarter than you. You need to do what we say there 's a ton of people in our business that will do that. You can find five of them on every, on every corner, um, but taking the time to uh, to give the why I think um, is definitely a foundational principle that we focus on.
1: yeah, I learned something years ago in teaching and it was that the the student controls the learning environment, and if the student 's not ready to learn they won 't learn it doesn 't matter how good the teacher is, so you need to to kind of get them excited at least in the financial side. I guess your clients want to learn but how do you how do you take some of those teaching principles and coaching principles with your employees and internally? So for me, Cameron, that
0: started with uh, my, my previous uh, my previous employer. I spent a lot of time training advisors and really teaching them how to do the job, um, and not just the numbers, but you know, asking the right questions and asking open ended questions where. Instead of getting a yes or a no, you're actually getting, you're engaging. You're engaging the client to respond and and really give you something and give you something uh, about what they're thinking and, and where their thought process is. So I think that was important. And then, you know, from a team perspective, I think, you know, number one, as a teacher, I always got a lot from my students almost as much and my players as much as I gave. And I think as a team, even though, yes, we're all teaching, we're all trying to get everybody trained on our systems and our platforms and everything that we use, um, we're always constantly finding ways to get better and learning. We call it fail forward a little bit as a startup. Uh, as you well know, you know you're going to fail forward and you're going to learn from, from mistakes. But we've been able to do that really well. And, um, and I, think our, I think our team appreciates that approach. I, I really do. And
1: do you take that concept of team from sports into the business world as well then? very much um
0: better together that's a mantra that we that we espouse quite a bit you know maybe we stole it from jack johnson i don't know but i think at the end of the day understanding strengths playing to strengths of the team and checking egos at the door and making sure that it's okay to be blunt it's okay to be bluntly honest Um, especially when you're in a leadership team meeting you know uh, you know, our CEO is not worried about hurting my feelings by, you know, letting me know something that he feels like isn't my best lane and vice versa. Um, you know, one thing I have learned as a CEO is that, you know, when you're, when you're giving feedback to the CEO, there's a right time and a right place to give that and make sure that you're, you're doing it in the right avenue and doing it in the right, um, in the right set, uh, in the right setting. But our leadership team in general is very open. It's, uh, it's like a, it's like a good Italian family. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to tell it like it is and everybody's going to be okay with that. And do you,
1: do you guys use the family analogy or the team analogy more?
0: I would say team for yeah. sure. I think, um, uh, even though we are like family
1: because we've kind of
0: grown up in the business together, at least our, 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 partners have. Um, I think that from a, from a team perspective, Uh, we, we all, we all work together really well in that way. And, uh, everybody has roles. Everybody, I think we're in our proper lanes, which took a little while. You know, one of the growing pains that we had was everybody was trying to do a little bit of everything. And, um, and we were really busy, but there's a difference between being busy and being efficient. And, um, and we've really, we've really improved over the last three years with, uh, with efficiency. I think that's cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I was talking to a friend, another CEO about this recently, and we were saying that we we don't want to use the term family in business anymore because some people had dysfunctional families growing up and rough families growing up. And it's true. I was like, Oh God, you're right. I didn't even think about it because I had that kind of leave it to beaver family. Right. right. We're family. We do vacations. And I people like I never went on vacation. I hated my mom and my dad shut like. I, yeah, it was crazy. Um, well, look, as athletes, as athletes, we were all on some bad teams at some point too. <laughs> okay, but, it's, but it's different with the team, right? Because team members, team members can be replaced, and you got to recruit. Recoup- yeah. We like always up leveling. The, I like the team analogy a lot more. Who's the uh, the CEO of Freedom Street Partners?
0: So our CEO is Scott Danner. Yeah. Um, Scott uh, Scott's our visionary. Scott has done a great job of uh, of leading uh, from the front, and definitely. Um, and definitely sets our course. Nobody works harder than Scott. I do my best to keep up with him, but he uh, he just has a passion for this business that is really tough to replicate. And um, he's he's more than a CEO for me. You know, he's he's like a brother. We really grew up in the business together at Edward Jones and um, and, you know, we we make each other better. And uh, and I'm I'm proud to I'm proud to be on the team with him. He's, uh, he's cool. been, a, been a great he's been a great leader for
1: our for our group. And, you know, you touched on something saying that Scott as the CEO is really the controls of vision and is that um, forward thinking, um, that passion that he's always transferring. How did you get on the same page? And how long have you been with Freedom Street Partners?
0: So uh, Freedom Street Partners started in July of 16, and I joined literally about three months afterwards. Okay. Uh, so I started in November of 16. And I'll be, I'll be honest, Cameron, you know, that first um that first 9 to 12 months in our industry when you when you leave your previous firm and you're coming to a to a new destination you know your focus isn't on the team your focus is really about um you know announcing to your to your clients that you've made a move and then answering their questions and hoping that they ask if it's okay for uh for them to come with you and uh so you're spending a lot of time just kind of rebuilding and making sure that your business your your individual business is in good order, sure. and going through that process is so important because any advisor that joins us has to go through some semblance of that process before they get their feet back under them and land. And um, it's actually more common now than it ever has been. There's uh, advisors are more willing to move than they ever have been. They're looking, oh, well. they're looking for options. They're, they they want to make sure that they have the best um, the best deliverables for their clients and also a good deal for them.
1: It seems to be a much more entrepreneurial industry than it was 20 years ago. Well,
0: you know, our business model is almost built on on that statement. Um, independence in this industry used to be very scary. Uh, everybody worked for a broker dealer who was an employer and you were an employee. They handled all the back office stuff and you just you were the face, you just met with the clients and you were more of a client relationship manager, but you didn't own the business. Um, the, the corporation owned the business and, uh, and they compensated you to take care of the clients. Well, we built out a platform and took time to build out the infrastructure. We call it independence with support. Hmm. So if an advisor wants to become an independent advisor and own their business, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they had to find healthcare, They had to find compliance. Um, They had to go and get additional licenses, which is, you know, for some advisors, especially if you're a veteran, you're not interested in taking a test and sitting for more exams. Um, They don't have solutions for investment management. So we took the time to build out all of those pieces so that somebody can become an independent and then plug into our resources. And, um, And so far, we've been able to execute on that, and it's been very successful. That's
1: cool. All right. So how did you and how do you stay on the same page as Scott with his vision of where, where he wants to take the company? How do you stay on the same page with vision? And then how do you keep him on the same page with where and how you want to make it come true, like with your plans?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think my first response, Cameron, would be uh, we, meet, we meet regularly. You know, traction, EOS traction has been uh, very important for us over the past year. We've started to be much more consistent with that implementation. So we do have a weekly meeting uh, every Monday that really starts to set the course for that particular week. Um, we do have quarterly offsites where we can dive deeper into what's going on and, and what are some of the things that we need to keep on our radar. And, uh, and then Scott and I just have a good working relationship. You know, sometimes when you have a really good functional team, your best ideas and the best communication and the best interaction are those. You know, you're you're at the beach on a Saturday afternoon with family, and you're just sitting next to one another, and you're able to actually just do a brain dump and um, and get back on the same page if there was some some things that were kind of lurking and and that may have fallen through the cracks. So a combination of all those things, but consistency has been key because communication was a challenge early. Um, we were in two separate locations initially. And, uh, you know, trying, trying to be on the same page when you're not, um, right next door to one another at all times was a challenge early on. Uh, now I spend some time in both offices, which has been, uh, been a, a very good, a very good move and
1: uh, helps us stay in touch. Yeah. What else did you do to, to, um, I guess, fix the communication challenges then?
0: Uh, we found some electronic avenues, um, you know, to be able to communicate with one another. I th- I look, I'll be honest with you. Some of the best information that we exchange is at 930 at night where we're literally typing it into an app and uh, and checking out, uh, checking out information and sharing it with everybody on the team and then getting immediate feedback. And then that way we can look at those things. And then when we're back face to face, we can recap and we can kind of figure out what's the best course of action going forward. So that's been uh, very important as well. I love it. Everybody's tired of talking through email. The e- email is... Uh, email, our email boxes are starting to thin out a little bit, which is actually great. It's been very,
1: um, it's been very liberating. Yeah. Email is terrible for communication. All right. So feedback you talked about uh, earlier about giving feedback to the CEO and sometimes it's not easy. So how do you deliver that tough feedback and give us an example, maybe of some tough feedback you've had to give
0: I think, um, I think one of the challenges, uh, just trying to be, trying to be a, uh, independent mind and looking at things from a 40,000 foot view is when you're the CEO of a company, you're trying to literally think of everything all the time and you're always on. And sometimes I think, um, that vision continues to, it's, it's always forward looking and it's always looking for the next roadblock or the next hurdle or the next challenge. And um, sometimes the execution is is difficult to keep up. Um, you know, we're still solving problems A, B, and C, and he's already five steps ahead. And that that's more of an advantage than it is a disadvantage. We would we would not be as good a company if it wasn't for that. But for me, making sure that I on the side. Uh, have that conversation with him, not in a meeting. I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, to call out your CEO in a leadership team meeting and say, Hey, you need to slow down. Or, you know, we haven't even, we haven't even fixed the first two issues before we go into issue four and five, but just making sure that he, um, that he stays grounded and keeps some perspective. And plus, he needs to know how the morale and the, and the mindset of staff and where they stand with everything that's being, uh, with everything that they're responsible for and making sure that um, that that they're on the same page and that they feel good about uh, their value and, and what they're having to accomplish. So I think, you know, without being too specific, I just think it's so important to respect the role of the CEO and making sure that every everybody always sees that I have his back. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, you can't rely on your quote-unquote right-hand man or right-hand person if you don't know 100% of the time that they're that they're on the same page with you
1: yeah when and it's interesting you talked about the feedback and doing it almost doing it privately versus publicly. It's the same as with any of your key employees, but the CEOs really want us to give them the hard feedback, but they want it privately because our job is to make them iconic yeah and and if we do it in front of everybody else, it tears them down. It doesn't do anything, but they actually want us to tell them the bad stuff and the and the critical or the um right. yeah any of the uncomfortable stuff that nobody else really does. So you, you mentioned quarterly offsites. Uh, how, how do you run those and what are they like?
0: So, uh, we, we tend to, uh, we, we actually have a location of, we have a, a building that has a huge room, uh, that we own, but we don't operate out of per se. Uh, we actually run some events out of that um, particular building and it's just a great spot. Um, we've got, we've got, Uh, easels, we've got a huge TV, we've got all the technology that we would need to put numbers up. Um, But we tend to just, uh, those tend to be pretty low key. There is a set agenda, but it's very informal. I think it provides a platform to where the team can be a little bit more, a little bit more outspoken. They can be, uh, you know, blunt's not necessarily the right word. I use that probably too often, but they can just speak with candor um and and go into much more detail i think those quarterly off sites give us the ability to um to not feel rushed uh i can't tell you how many times i've been in a hour-long meeting where i felt like there was still things hanging out there that if we just had a little bit more time and so those quarterly offsites have been just uh very instrumental um in doing those when we first started the company um we, we uh we, we started to have some you know we had some 6 to 8 hour uh planning meetings and that was the impetus of you know where we are today and if we didn't have those meetings we wouldn't have had a lot of the great ideas that we came up with to how to get this thing started and, and grow it as fast as we have
1: oh for sure now what other uh, meeting rhythms do you have in place
0: we do a uh <clears throat> we do an annual meeting which includes all of our our entire company so we do uh what I call regional meetings so that's where we, uh, we actually share our vision with um, everybody that's a part of our company so they can see. Um, we also uh, recognize, we highlight, uh, you know, the folks within our business who are doing well, who are excelling, they're bringing in business, um, they're growing their practice. Uh, and so we definitely want to recognize folks when they do that. And then we're actually fortunate. Uh, our, our, our parent company, our affiliate uh, broker dealer, Raymond James provides a national conference each year. That is second to none, and that um, that gives us an ability to take uh, take our group to Las Vegas, to Orlando, to Washington D.C., to some different places throughout the country, and um, and spend some time with them and break bread and um, and celebrate them uh, out of town and, and and give them an opportunity to to kind of almost take a little mini
1: break, which has been very good. That's cool. You um, you also talked about EOS traction. So um, when did you guys start using traction? What do you like about it? Um, so I love EOS traction. We started after, uh, I attended our
0: first, uh, our first COO Alliance meeting. Um, it's probably one of the best values that I got from, uh, from that particular meeting, uh, in Arizona. Um, there was, uh, there was another COO who was there, who was, and who had been implementing it for some time. And, um, they were just talking about it. And I said, I need to, I need to see this. I need this book. I need to read it. I need to understand what in the heck you're doing because it's, it's solving all the problems that I, I see that we have, that we need to try to fix just from a communication standpoint and finding a rhythm um, to what we do. And, um, and so that's been good. We still have a couple pieces to go. Uh, the scorecard has been um has been very important. And it's something that we have needed to get a hold of uh, for a long time. And we're really starting to wrap our arms around that, which is uh, which is great. And just the concept of if I was on a deserted island and um, and I could only have, you know, eight to 10 pieces of data to understand whether or not my business was doing well or not, it was so simple, but so effective. And uh, And it really kind of made us look at our business a little differently, which was good.
1: And, it, and it'll take you time to put each of those systems in place too, right? So don't get discouraged that it takes usually, you know, a year to two years to have the systems and then two to three years to have them deeply ingrained and just happening on autopilot too. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of change. So talk about growing your team. How many, tell tell us a little bit about um, Freedom Street Partners. So how many employees have you got? What what markets do you operate in?
0: Sure. So we started, obviously, with just three advisors and a couple of uh, support staff when we first, uh, when we first began. Um, we now have a total of 12 advisors, and I believe we have a total of eight support staff. Now, keep in mind, all of our advisors, they run their own independent LLCs. They're just affiliated with us. So they're not employees of our company, but they are just a part of our group. Um, which is very advantageous to us we, we like having uh, being able to not have to deal with uh, their payroll and, and some of the things that they have to take care of internally um, we've grown from hundred eighty million dollars of assets under management to uh, just under 700 million uh, in the course of about uh, two years two and a half years and uh, we uh, we're we're right at just under 6 million of revenue, uh, on a, on a trailing 12. So we're, uh, we're, we're growing very fast, which is uh, awesome and scary all at the same time. But, um, but I think we're very grounded. We took our time in year one building out the infrastructure instead of just growing as fast as humanly possible and taking on anyone and everyone we've grown the right way. We, we haven't added a single advisor, that we haven't been tickled to death, that they're a part of our group, Um, a year later, two years later. I think that's important. There's been no buyer's remorse. Um, there's really three ways, uh, Cameron, that, that people work with us, uh, either affiliates, which affiliates are people, you know, maybe they're in their thirties, forties, fifties, they're not going to retire anytime soon from this business, but they just know that, They need more and they want to own their business. They're they're tired of being an employee somewhere else and they want to own their practice, but they want to do it with some support. Uh, So that's one way that people work with us. Number two is succession. So think of the advisor who doesn't want to leave tomorrow, but knows that they're close, maybe three, five, seven years from now. They want to get out of the business, but they want to do it on their terms and on their time schedule. Um, so we work with those advisors as well to have a built in succession plan for their practice. And then lastly is acquisitions. So the advisor that has hit the, hit the, the last chapter and they're ready to go within the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, and they want to phase out fairly quickly and they want to sell their practice. And so those are really the three main groups of, uh, of advisors that we look to work with. And then everything we do uh, Cameron revolves around the, the end client. So every process, every platform, all of our investment management, it revolves around how do we deliver an ideal client experience to the end client, to the the folks um, that we're actually serving uh, on a day-to-day basis. And so I think uh, not le- not getting lost, not letting that get lost on us has been very important and making sure that uh, that we keep that in mind with every decision that we make.
1: And you guys are in a really competitive industry in that, um, yeah, very competitive industry. Most of the clients are sitting with advisors they've often been with for years. Um, I, I think I've been with my financial advisor for 10. Um, yep. We don't really change that often. And how do, you, how do you differentiate yourself from the rest of the competition out there? And uh, yeah, how do you differentiate yourself?
0: It's the perfect question. I think, uh, I, I think it's something that we, we work hard to achieve every day. And that is, uh, you know, we built out a process and we actually named it and the name of our process is life and wealth optimization. And if you think about it, just on its most basic um, premise, life comes before wealth in that title. And that was very intentional. So when clients come to see us, you know, the first questions we're asking of them are not how much money do you have and, you know, what, what kind of investments do you, own. it's, you know, what lights you up? Um, what are you passionate about? Uh, what is, what does the next chapter look like for you? What are you doing? Um, and you know, not in that hoity toity, Hey, we want to, we're going to, we're going to write down all your dreams and, and goals type situation. Cause there are some firms that do preach some of that stuff but really taking an interest in that particular individual, learning about their personality, looking about what's important to them, and then using that as a guide for how we navigate their financial future. Um, so we we don't want a relationship with their money. Um, we want a, re- a relationship with them. And I think that's the only way you can really separate yourself in this industry anymore because everybody's got good investment management. Everybody ha- has relationships with, the best mutual funds, and they have good research, and they can put together a solid investment platform for any of their clients. So beyond that, it's who really cares about me as a person? Who really cares about what happens with my money? Who who cares whether I'm able to buy that dream house or whether I'm able to buy that boat or go on that vacation that um, has been my dream my dream trip to Europe or whatever it is? So I think that's really the premise of how we've separated ourselves, and then creating a client experience that's scalable, repeatable, and manageable for any of the advisors that tap into our resources. So there's a lot of advisors who've been letting their business run them. You know mm-hmm. Their phone constantly rings off the hook. Um, if the market is down, they're constantly you know, having to answer tons of questions that their clients are scared and they don't know what's going on we've, we've really tried to be proactive and build out our client experience in a way where our phone doesn't ring much. And the reason is, is because we have a pre-scheduled call with them and they know exactly when it's going to be, how often it's going to be, because it's at their convenience and when they want it to happen. Um, If it's monthly, great.
1: If it's quarterly, we'll do it. If it's only twice a year, because they don't want to talk to us that much. So we're going to come into another market correction. I mean, the market's correct. Um, so what do you guys do to, um, to kind of deal with that stress when your customers have that kind of a stress? Cause I think we all in every business, we have times when our customers are stressed out, but I think when the money's involved, it's particularly stressful. What do you guys do to deal with that? Yeah.
0: One of the main things that we've always done has been event driven. So we do monthly town halls, uh, in all of our locations. And when I say town hall, I want you to envision that um, we have, a, we, we rent out a room and we're not in there giving a dog and pony show about the latest, greatest investment. You know, we'll start off and we'll talk about, you know, the backdrop of what's going on in the universe with the economy. Uh, we'll give some of the information that are coming from our chief market strategists uh, because you know what, they're very smart. They have a lot more letters after their name than I do. So I'm always going to share that information. But more importantly, we actually talk about the emotional side of investing. Um, the, the worst investment decisions that are made are almost always made on emotion and not on logic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know everybody has heard the old adage that Warren Buffett has used for years, which is buy low and sell high. And or be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. But human emotion does not do that. When everybody's scared, everybody gets scared with them and they're selling at the worst possible time. So the other thing we do is we just have some, we have some principles that we believe in. And number one is don't own an investment today that you wouldn't want to own in a recession tomorrow. You know, really think about the business model of that particular uh, investment and whether or not um, you would be nervous about it if the economy started to struggle. And so we think, um, we think there's things like that, that you want to make sure that you're factoring in when you're making, uh, when you're making investment decisions.
1: That's interesting. I like that. But yeah, I c I can't wait for the market to have this next big correction because I've been building up cash recently, waiting to to kind of buy back in. So absolutely. I know you, I know you can't time the market, but I made a pile of money in two thousand eight and nine when everybody was panicking and puking in the streets and I'm like, fucking load her up, baby. I bought absolutely. Eight, I bought eight stocks and load I was up hundred and seven percent year one year over year. It was great. Um what do you think you learned in this industry that is, is helpful for people in other businesses, other industries? Wow. Um, you know, I think, I think
0: in a service business, Cameron, and I think you probably agree with this um, being able to relate to the end client and being able to um, serve them in a way where they know that you care uh, about them as people and not just about the next sale and not about the next transaction. I think developing long-term relationships, developing um, generational relationships. You know, we have clients who are older, but we we know who their kids are. Their kids are probably clients of ours. And if it's not their kids, then it's their grandchildren. Um, And taking a a vested interest in the people, you know, it was in my bio. If you surround yourself with good people, good things will happen. I've always believed that. That's something that was instilled in me a long time ago. But at the end of the day, if we, can, uh, if we can show empathy and, you know, what makes us different is, you know, we show up for the retirement party or we're hosting it. Um, we show up at the funeral. Uh, you know, we are more than just a financial a planner or a financial advisor. Um, and I think that can carry through to any business. People know if you're, if you're genuine. For People sure. can read whether you really care or whether you just talk really well about what you do. And so we don't, we don't, lip service doesn't do any good for anybody. Um, And so we want to make sure that our actions are always aligned with our words. And if you can do that in whatever business you're running, whether it's your employees or whether it's your clients, um, your culture will be second to none and nobody will ever leave you.
1: Talk to me about, um, about advisors. Again, the kind of the, the war on talent and you're again in a very competitive industry. Why do you think the advisors join you? What is it that you do on the recruiting side to um to bring them over? Uh and to not scare them away when you're when you're interviewing them. Yeah. Almost all of the
0: advisors that we're talking to, uh at some point they've known that they were different and that they weren't in the right place. And I think what they're scared of is they want to own the business, but they don't want to own all of the the headaches that come with owning a business. Mm. And so I think what's good, what's so easy to tell about our story is, you know, you could go independent and just be your own person. Don't even affiliate with us. Just, just go be your own guy or gal, but you're going to take on hundred percent of all those headaches and those responsibilities with, with our platform you're gonna be paid exactly the same way as if you were by yourself on your own on that island, but you get all the resources that we've built out and what we provide. And so that's been an easy story to tell. And I think if you, you almost have to not like us to not wanna join with us if you're considering independence. Um, but the other thing I think is, you know, we've all done what we're asking these advisors to do, we've made a change we've gone through it and we've lived it. You know, from a teaching perspective, we all had the, um, we all had the administrator who told us how we should teach, what we should teach and what format we should teach it. And when you ask, well, when was the last time you were in a classroom? Oh, I was never in the classroom. Well, it really takes away a lot of credibility, um, from the administrator. Uh, not to say that there can't be some good administrators that weren't ever in the classroom, but nine times out of 10, they're not well, We are the administrator who has been in the weeds, has been in the classroom, has done the teaching, has done the hard work. And so being able to share our experience with that and share uh, mistakes that we made that we improved upon, you know, because we've already we've already screwed it up. Um, The fact that we're going to keep them from making those same mistakes. I think it's I
1: think it's very um, comforting uh, to the advisors that are considering making that change. That's cool. It makes logical sense. All right, Andrew, if you were to look back at yourself at 21 years old and you were to give yourself some advice, stuff that you know today to be true, but you wish you'd known at 21, what do you think it would be?
0: I think I definitely would have, uh, I would have pulled the trigger on starting in this business sooner. Mm. Um, I, I was this close to making that change at 22, 23. And didn't do it. So, uh, so that five year period that I lost, there was a lot of growth during that five years that would have been exponentially uh, different today. Um, number two, you know, I think I think we get so caught up in our our education, our degree, uh, you know, what we're doing, and that that wedges us down a path that we have to follow and that we have to go with. I think at the end of the day if something calls your name and something speaks to you and you feel like it's the right direction, it's okay to change course. It's okay to deviate from what you thought some predestined path was for you. Um, So I think that would be, you know, follow your heart. I know that sounds very uh, cliche, but I think at the end of the day, if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to be happy and you're not going to be able to be successful um, in whatever it is that you're doing. I still believe to this day, if, if they would pay me the same uh, amount of money to be a, a, a baseball coach, that's, I'd be on a bench somewhere doing it. But it doesn't it doesn't pay the bills. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that'll be my retirement job. So after I after I retire and sail off into the sunset, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna
1: be uh, an assistant college baseball coach somewhere, uh, wherever it is. I'll come, I'll come watch your team. You've been smiling this whole podcast interview as well. So it's cool. You clearly love what you do. Yeah. Andrew Gregory, the chief operating officer from freedom street partners. Thanks very much for sharing with us today. Cameron. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you at the uh, COO Alliance event in September as well. Yeah, man. Looking forward to it. All right. See ya. Yep. Have a good one.
0: You've been listening to second in command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.